0: Isaiah chapter 9. Now, if you if you've got an Afrikaans Bible, you're gonna to turn to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 23, the last verse of Isaiah 8, but in the English it's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. So don't lose your bearings. Um, if you're following in an Afrikaans Bible, ek sê. Uh, But it's it's going to be on the screen in English, so maybe it'll just be easier to follow, follow the screen. And the theme for this evening's message, Christmas in the Last Days. Let's pray. Great God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, Give us now a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God, enlightening the eyes of our hearts, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in all the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of your power? toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. You put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is your body or his body, Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Glorify your name, Lord, and give us an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. So a very popular view. You hear that that, uh, theme? Christmas in the last days. What do you think of when you hear the word last days? I think you you're thinking of last days. (laughs) You're thinking of the short period before the second coming of Jesus. Well, actually, that's not how it's used in the Bible. Actually, Hebrews 1 verse 1 Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the or by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. Or what about Hebrews 9 verse 26 that speaks of Jesus and it speaks of His death. And it says, in these last days or the end of the ages, Jesus has come and by the sacrifice of Himself and so on. Or what about 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11? That say it speaks to the, Paul's writing to the Christians in Corinth in the first century, and he speaks to them and he says, "You upon whom the end of the ages has come, or the end of all things, the end of the ages has come." Hmm. So actually, when we read the Bible, Christmas, the very first Christmas, the birth of Jesus, that's the beginning of the last days. So the last days go, goes from the first coming of Jesus right to the second coming of Jesus. It's not just the very few short years before the second coming. And we know the second coming then will be the end of the last days. But it's closer today, did you know? The second coming is closer today than it was yesterday. Romans 13, verse 11. We are one day nearer to our salvation. And we're going to see this in Isaiah 9 develop these last days, from the first to the second coming. So first, point number one, after darkness, light. So let us read Isaiah chapter 9 on the screen, verse 1 or Afrikaans Bible 8 verse 23. On the screen, Isaiah 9 verse 1. But there will be... No gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into content, that is God, brought into content the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. November 2020, my missionary friend Seth Myers is on holiday in the Western Cape. And he sends me a picture of himself standing at the Huguenot Monument and Museum in Franschhoek. And on the wall is written, Post Tenebras. Looks, Latin, meaning after darkness, light. And that was referring to the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther and John Calvin. Because there was a period of darkness in the church, the Catholic Church, uh, and corruption and false teaching and so on. And the reformers came and they recovered the true teaching of the Word of God and the true teaching of the gospel. Now, this is exactly what's happening in Isaiah chapter 9. Because you see in verse 1, um, it says there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Because the previous verse at the end of Isaiah 8 says, uh, it's about the Assyrians. The Assyrians would come and they would destroy Israel. And they would take the Israelites into captivity to a foreign land. And so it was darkness. If you read the end of Isaiah 8, it's all darkness and gloom and depression. But now it says... After darkness, light. And when did the light come? It says in verse 1 in the latter times. And Elastite and Lateratea. That was not referring to the second coming of Jesus. That refers to the first coming of Jesus. When Jesus came. And it says in verse 1 the, the, the darkness came on Zebulun and Naphtali. Now those are the northern tribes of Israel. So when the Assyrians come and they attack Israel, they come from the north. So who are the first two tribes to suffer under this attack? Zebulun, Naphtali. Now they are the first two tribes who will see the light. Where does Jesus start his ministry? In Jerusalem or up north in Galilee. Galilee galilee of the gentiles as it's called here in galilee of the nations beyond the jordan the western side of the jordan right by the sea that's the sea of galilee so that's the darkness came there first, first and now the first place where the light comes when jesus starts his ministry is Zebulun, naphtali galilee of the gentiles or galilee of the nations now that That makes it very clear that the light shining, it's not just for Israel. Because it ends Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. That's non-Jews. It's not Israelites. So the gospel comes to them also. Because when 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 the Israelites came into the promised land, they left Egypt. Uh, Moses brought them out of, out of Egypt, and then Joshua brought them into the promised land, and then they started conquering all the nations, and, and uh, the promised land is now their gift from God, their inheritance. But then up north, Zebulon and Naphtali, those two tribes, but the others also, but those two, they do not drive out all the nations. And so they've got these nations stuck, the Gentiles with them, uh, in Galilee, in the north. And then not only that, Jesus even preaches to people who are not Jews, to Gentiles. For instance, in Matthew 8, Jesus says of a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion, I have not even seen in all of Israel, I haven't seen faith like this man has. Or what about the woman, a Canaanite woman, a Syrophoenician woman? She begs Jesus, please come and heal my daughter, and Jesus ignores her, and she keeps on crying and, and calling After Jesus and the disciples get irritated and said, Send this woman away, she's bothering us. And Jesus turns around and says, It's not it's not, you know, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs, because the the Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs. And then she said, Yes, but the dogs they even eat the crumbs that fall on the floor, that fall from the table. And Jesus tested her actually, and he says, This woman has great faith. And go and it will be done as you have asked. And her daughter then He's healed. But there you see again, end of verse 1, Galilee of the nations. So Jesus comes not only for the Jews, but he comes for the Gentiles. Uh, God so loved the Jews that he gave his only begotten son. No, God so loved the world, the nations. Now, unfortunately, it is so that some people, they, it's like they shy away from the light. It's like they dodge the light. Uh, they avoid the light. They do not want to come to the light because the light is going to shine on them and show their sin like jesus said in john 3 they 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 hate the light and so people do not come many people do not come to the word they don't come to the bible because the light is going to shine they don't come to the gathering of believers and we see this even in our own church some people who just start avoiding and they stay away why because they're afraid the light will shine Uh, Or they avoid other Christians because now, you know, in the presence of other Christians, you feel guilty because they're seeking to obey the Lord and you're not. And so people avoid the light. They don't come to this light, as verse 1 speaks, the light that will come and shine. And verse 2, the people walking in darkness saw a great light. But that's uh, that's like avoiding the doctor when you're sick maar Afrikaans oorslag, die een Engelse is nou uit, maar as hy weer um, Engels aangaat. Maar dit is, is om die dokter te mij, want jy is bang, jy krij niet. Hoe Hoekom niet liever naar die geneesheer te komen? nie? Hoekom niet liever naar Jezus te komen dat hij genees en gee nie? Dat hij herstel, gee nie? Jezus kan moest mense uit de donker verleden reed. So daai wat het sê, hy he skyn sy licht in die donkernis. Die mense wat in donker was, die licht kom naar hulle toe. Maak die saak hoe donker hier verleden is. Want hele die vrouw wat een prostitut was, hy was een slachteloosbandige vrouw. This evil woman, uh, woman living in sexual immorality. And Jesus, Jesus saves her from that kind of life. Jesus forgives her sin. Or what about the thief on the cross? This is the the final hours of his life. He's a murderer. He's an evil man and Jesus saves him from a dark past. And can Jesus not do the same? Yes, he can because verse 1 and 2 tells us these people who lived in gloom, the light has come, the light has come, Come, no more darkness but light. Now how does God save us from the darkness? This is how he saves us from darkness. He, he becomes a man and he is nailed to a cross. And he hangs on that cross in darkness. Three hours of darkness. Why? So that we can be, could be brought and would be brought from darkness to His glorious light. From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So that we who were in darkness would be made qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what God tells you in His word is believe in the light. John 8 verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Believe in the light while you have the light. Don't reject the light. Don't turn your back on the light. Avoid the darkness. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So then avoid darkness. Light and darkness have nothing to do with one another. Put on the armor of light. And turn away from what is dark and appreciate the light while you have it. Because if you do not appreciate the light and enjoy the light while you have it, God might well remove the light. Like Jesus in John 12 verse 35 and 36, Jesus says exactly that. While you have the light, walk in the light, but they did not. And then it says, and Jesus hid himself. So don't abuse What God gives you and when God shines the light, don't ignore the light. Because in the end, God might do what Matthew 25 verse 30 says, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing or grinding of teeth. Number two, joy and peace. That is in verse 2 to 4. Let's read. No, no. I'm mixing up the stuff. Verse 3 to 5. I'm following Afrikaans notes. <laughs> Screen. Verse 3 to 5. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you with a joy. As with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden. And the staff of his shoulder. The, for his shoulder. The staff of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Do you remember, those of you who've been here long enough? Well, not that long even. Do you remember 2019? That was a time when all of a sudden, in just at once, we had all these people rush upon this church. And we had people come and join the church. And the joy and the gladness and the prayer meetings exploded. And the finances our God provided. And the support of missions. And street evangelism. And the love among one another. And food. Food goes with friendship. Uh, And the church camp in 2019. You remember that? Oh, the unity among the people, conversions, baptisms, testimonies, even church members being converted. you remember that? Now that is what's going on in verse 3, where it says you've multiplied the nation. It's just growing God's people. And because they're growing, what happens? You've increased its joy. So happiness and gladness. Why? Because Israel... When God took them into captivity through the Assyrians, they went to another country away from their homeland and they were scattered. But now it says they will increase. And as they increase, the joy increases. And you see that in the book of Acts. You see, when people are converted, just go and read the book of Acts, And as you go, you see people being saved, people being saved, people being saved, people added to the church. And you see what we saw in 2019, the unity, the love, the happiness, the evangelism, the joy, the prayer meetings, the preaching of the word, the singing. They didn't have a church camp. But it was wonderful. And you can, you can go like that all the way through the book of Acts. And see, every time you see the church growing, you see the joy increase and the happiness of God's people. We, we, we rejoice, even though we do not see Him, we love Him and, and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. Now, how did verse 3 happen? How did that happen that the nation increased, it multiplied? And here's God's people. It happened because of the end of verse 1, Galilee of the nations. This, this is not only Jews. God has now added the Gentiles. God has now added people from all nations. And they've been converted. Just like God promised in Isaiah 54 where it says, This tent, this tent is now too small. The Gentiles are joining. And that was actually prophesied in Genesis 9 to Noah's sons. That ja, uh, Japheth... He will come and live in Shem's tent. Shem is the Shemite Semitic volk of Israel and Japheth Gentiles. So the now Ephesians 2 also speaks of this, that, that the Gentiles have now joined the Jews, those who believe in Christ. And they also become partakers, citizens of Israel, of the true Israel, God's people. So that's how it multiplied, that's how it increased. Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And that is fulfilled in Jesus, Galatians 3, go and read it. The offspring of Abraham. And eventually you've got Revelation 7 verse 9, this picture of heaven. And a multitude, a crowd that no one can number from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's what's going on in verse 3. This joy, this is growing. The church is growing. The people of God, how did that happen? It happened through prayer and evangelism. Ezekiel 36. Yes, Ezekiel 36 verse 37. This also will I let them ask of me. I will make them pray this to increase their people like a flock. And so when God leads you to pray, when God lays things on your heart and He starts laying it on the people in the church and we start praying for this, why does God lead us to pray that? Because He wants to give it. Where God leads you to pray, He means you to receive, said Spurgeon. And so we start praying for that. And did we not pray for that? We prayed for that and God just increased and the church started growing and growing and growing. It doesn't look like it now because people have left. (laughs) They're on holiday and some are sick. But it started growing God added, God did this. And then through evangelism, you read the book of Acts again and again, the word of the Lord increased, the word of God spread, the word of the Lord increased, the church started growing. And you know, sometimes when I read that, I think, why do we act as if church growth through conversions, why do we act as if that is something wow, or that is something abnormal? That is normal. You read through Acts Everywhere you see where the gospel goes and where people pray and for the preaching of the word, that's what happens. Churches grow. We just spoke about this on Thursday night, Rulf and Kurs and I at the elders meeting. Uh, I said to my brothers, I said, why are we not seeing people saved? And I think the answer is clear. We're praying for it, and and the Lord rebuked me about this yesterday. I just shared it in the prayer meeting. But we're praying for people to be saved but you're a hypocrite actually and i'm talking to myself also you're a hypocrite if you're praying for people to be saved but you're not telling them about christ you're not sharing the gospel so let us do that let us do that let us pray for the conversion of the jews let us pray for the conversion of the gentiles let us preach for the conversion of the jews for the conversion of the gentiles Oh you who put the Lord in remembrance, you who put the Lord in remembrance, do not rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in all the earth. And and what will happen in our church if we see people being saved? If we see it starts the church starts growing again. Because we saw growth, we saw growth in 2020, but we want to see more people saved. Listen, it's not about numbers merely, but in another sense, it is about numbers. Not numbers for numbers' sake, but numbers for Jesus' sake. Why? Do we want few people to worship Jesus? Or do we want to see many people come to Christ, and many people worship at the feet of the Lamb? Or will we say, it's not about numbers, we don't care, neighbours, you can go to hell, it's not about numbers. We want to see people saved. But people will not be saved unless two things happen. Number one, we pray for the salvation of sinners. And number two, we preach for the salvation of sinners. And I include myself in that. Because as I told you, the Lord rebuked me about this yesterday. And then when that happens, verse verse 3 will happen. Uh, Back one. Verse 3 will happen. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. You will see joy increase. And you see that in acts you see when people are converted the joy increases the joy increases the joy increases and he compares it to you rejoice they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest like when you have a big harvest there's a big party because we, now the wheat is coming in or if you plant I don't, they didn't plant millies in israel i think but when the millies come in and the big harvest is there there's joy There's joy, there's a feast, there's actually a feast in Israel for this, called the Feast of Weeks, in in the New Testament we call it Pentecost, to say the harvest is coming in, and that's a very good picture of the multiplication of the growth of God's people, because uh, Jesus even speaks of a great harvest that must come in. And then the next picture in verse 3 at the bottom, glad as when they divided the spoil, that's when you attack your enemies, you fight a battle, you win the war, and you take all their stuff. If he had a gold watch, he'd take his gold watch, or whatever he had. And so that's also a picture of salvation, because Isaiah 53 says of Jesus, when he dies, he will take the spoils from his enemies. That brings great joy, great gladness. That's what we want to see, right? And that's a very very fitting illustration, as I said, because when, when a church grows like that and the joy increases, people are saved. Edel Hulse, um, he's a South African he was a South African preacher, but lived in England for more than 60 years. He passed away a few years ago. But that guy, he's, he made this statement and said, New converts, never bakirling, new converts are the lifeblood of a church. This 1 split kerk. Because if people are saved, we we've been Christians for longer. You know, you can't, you, you're wiser now, but sometimes you ease back a little. But you see these new converts. They, they haven't got the skill and the wisdom. But that, that charges others to say, yes, we've forgotten our duty. We've forgotten the great commission, the great command, or commission to go out and make disciples of the nations. And so I want to encourage you. Uh, Sean and I spoke about this this morning. But I want to encourage you and encourage myself, Uh, this is December, maybe you're going away, maybe not, but this is a time we should use, especially Christmas time, to talk to people about Jesus. And maybe if you you don't know how to say it or what to say, take a tract and give it to someone. Uh, Invite a friend to church and say, we've got a special, we've got a Christmas service on Christmas day at eight o'clock, you want to come? And invite people and... And get the good news out and pray and trust the Lord to save. And then once you've sown the seed, you don't know what will happen to the seed, but trust the Lord. He can make it grow. So this this reason for growth, and what's, what's behind all of this? Well, that's in the next verse. For, there's the reason, because. The yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you've broken as on the day of midian you know the picture of a yoke, a yoke you've got this heavy beam on your shoulders and the rod of the oppressor it's like you're a slave and they're beating you so the rod of the oppressor the rod of, uh, and the staff on his shoulder you've and a, as on the day of midian that's when gideon remember gideon with his army of 300 and they were under the Midianites for many years. For seven years, it's like this yoke is on them and they can't break free. And then God sends Gideon and God breaks them free. And the Israelites are free. And so that's the picture we have here. The picture is of being saved. God, God has now broken the rod of the oppressor. And He's not talking about Egypt. When, when Israel, Israelites were slaves, He's not talking about the Assyrians. He's not talking about the Babylonians. He's talking about being a slave to sin. And a slave to Satan. And now Jesus, the strong man, comes and he binds Satan. He's stronger than Satan. And he breaks his power and he sets the prisoners free through faith in himself. And we are now free from the chains and the bonds of sin. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. How does he do that? you know how Jesus frees frees us from that yoke, from the burden? By carrying it himself. Who carries the cross of Jesus? Jesus carries it himself and he's too weak and he falls. And someone has to take it from him. But Jesus takes the yoke upon him. And now we don't have to bear that yoke. Now now we can be free, can be set free. Now Jesus says, I now give you a light yoke, a, a luchter yoke. A yoke. It's not heavy. I'm not putting it on you to punish you. I'm just putting it on you to connect you to me. So you will walk right by my side. And keep close by and live in a relationship, a personal relationship with me. Okay, question. Are you under the yoke of sin? Is there anyone here, you are under bondage. You are in chains. You think you're free. You think, no, I'm doing what I want. Can you set yourself free? You're not doing what you want. You're doing what the devil wants. You're doing what your sin wants. And you're a slave and you can't free yourself. You're like those people. In verse 4, they were under this yoke. You know what sin does to you? And Satan does to you? It's lying to you. It promises pleasure and happiness. It promises joy, but what does it do? It makes you its slave and it's beating you, it's whipping you, it's lashing you. You're a slave, like that verse says, verse four. So I want to, I want to encourage you to do what Christian did. You know who Christian is? Christian is a character in John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, and he had this big burden on his back. It's a big burden on his back and he couldn't get it off. He tried many things, he couldn't get rid of it. And eventually he goes through a narrow gate, but it still hasn't fallen off because it doesn't represent sin. It represents conviction of sin. Because you can be a Christian. Yes, your sins are forgiven, but you're still walking with this burden. You haven't got assurance of salvation. You're not sure, am I his and is he mine? So he's walking with this burden and where where does it fall off? When he comes to the cross... And this big burden falls from his back and rolls into an empty grave, an open tomb. I want to tell you to do that. If you're bearing that burden, you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not a Christian. You've got this weight of sin upon your back. Come to the cross. Maybe you are a Christian. And you feel this weight. And your sin has been forgiven, but you don't have assurance of salvation. Am I saved? Yes, I am. No, I'm not. Am I? No? Yes? I don't know. Come to the cross again and stay and live by the cross. Camp by the cross. And then the burden will fall off. And Come to the empty tomb. Christ is alive. You can live. You can live. And let the burden, cast your burden unto Jesus. Now another reason for joy, and that is in verse 5. Second reason, four because. Why are they rejoicing? In verse 3, because. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. That is talking of a battle, of a war. But that is now saying the war is over. The war is past. That's the reason for joy. What war is he talking about? Yes, the Assyrians, but it's more than the Assyrians. There's a war with God. Why? Because of our sin. And Isaiah 40 verse 2 speaks of that war and says the war is over. The war is over. How did the war end? Between us and God. Because we are enemies of God. We've rebelled against Him. We've sinned against Him. How did the war end? You know how? God drew His sword. And Zechariah chapter 13 speaks of this. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 says, God drew His sword... And he fought against, not the devil, his own son. Go and read Zechariah 13 verse 7. God drew his sword against the shepherd. And the sword of the Lord became wet with the blood of his son. So that his sword would not be wet with our so that he could save us. And so now the war is over. There is peace between us and God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 1. And that's the great reason for joy. No more war. Peace. Now don't convince yourself that you have peace with God if you are living against God. If you are living in sin against God, there is no peace with God. R.C. Sproul said that he almost drove his car off the road when he saw a big billboard with a church sign at at a mega church, this billboard saying black background, white letters, God is not angry at you. I God is angry at you if you live in sin. God is angry every day at sin. Psalm 7 verse 11 or verse 12 in the Afrikaans. The only way you can have real joy and real peace with God is if you trust His Son. If you repent and turn to His Son and confess your sin to His Son, to the Father... And saying, on behalf of the Son who died for me, on behalf of Christ who died for me, please forgive my sins. And when God forgives you, you will have joy. Like the missionary who spoke to the people and said, said to them, the islanders, that if you repent of your sin, if you turn away from sin and trust in the Son of God, then God says, your sins are forgiven. And they started jumping and shouting for joy. And that will be true of you too. If you repent and trust in the Son of God, then God says to you tonight, what He said in Mark 2 verse 5, My child, your sins are forgiven. Finally, number three, the last days. Chapter 9 verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Uh, zeal is ever, ne, ever, sold it do. Now, to my dear friends who disagree with me, and you might even disagree with me after the service. So, people called premillennialists, don't worry about the name, premillennialists believe that the world is going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus then comes. Our millennialists believe that everything will remain the same until Jesus comes. There are going to be good times and bad times. The world will be good and the church will grow and it's going to be up and down. Uh, Post-millennials believe that things will be better before the end. It will grow better and Christ will save more and more sinners and His kingdom will spread through revival, through prayer and through the gospel. Now I will disappoint you and tell you I believe the last one. Okay, and you can, you can ask me all your questions afterward, but what about this and what about that? All right, I believe post-millennials are right. The darkness will never overcome the light. John 1 verse 5. Now, when did the light start to shine? We read that earlier, at the first coming of Jesus. And here in verse 6, to us a child is born, at the first coming, and that light will grow Brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter, says Proverbs 4, verse 18. And it will keep on growing brighter, verse 6, it's, uh, verse 7 in the English, of the increase of His government, increase, that grew more and more, and of peace. And that will continue until the second coming of Jesus, when it is full day, when the sun shines. And that's the third reason we have for joy. Remember in verse, in verse 3 it says the people are rejoicing. So here we have in verse 6 again, for, third reason, because, here's why they rejoice, because this child is born, the light has come. The light has come. And you see that at the birth of Jesus. The wise men rejoice. The shepherds rejoice. Simeon rejoices. Anna rejoices. And so we see here the Messiah born as a child. A child is born. If a child is born, what does that mean of Jesus? It means Jesus is fully and truly man. He's truly a human being. But to us a son is given. The son. Oh, the son. Yes, he's the son of man, but he's also the son of God. And we read that in Luke 1 very clearly. And then it says... To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. When Jesus laid as a baby boy in a manger, it was for us. When Jesus hung as a full-grown man on a cross, it was for us. To us, for us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Given in his death. Given in his birth. And so that teaches you, for us, unto us, that teaches you Christianity is a personal thing. Us, to us. It's a personal relationship. It doesn't say a son is born, a child is given. To us. To all who have received him, to to those who believe in his name, to them he has given the right to become the children of God. Oh, bow with Thomas before him and don't say Lord and God, but say my Lord and my God. Or with the Apostle Paul, with Christ Gave himself for me. He gave himself for me. Question: Are you his? And is he yours? in Are you his and is he yours? And if you say, "No, then call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And if you say, "Yes, I have repented and I'm following Christ, but I'm not sure I I his, then ask him, give me assurance of salvation. And come under the rule of Jesus Christ and the kingship of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus. And then you acknowledge him as four things. In verse 6, you acknowledge him as wonderful counsellor. That word wonderful in Hebrew literally means awesome, supernatural, this one of a kind, this unique, this uh, extraordinary counsellor. There's no one like Jesus. Have you seen in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, have you seen when Jesus speaks, how people often are amazed at the things He says and and His enemies are silenced because He's a wonderful counselor, a supernatural counselor. He's a king that needs no counsellors. You know in every king's court there are counsellors that gives advice to the king. Jesus needs no advisors. Jesus needs no counsellors. He's the supernatural counsellor. He's the wonderful, the awesome counsellor. He needs no counsellors. He's never been perplexed. He's never been confused. The solution to every problem in the universe lies with Jesus Christ the all-wise one. He knows exactly what to say and when to say it. And so don't go to your your non-Christian psychologist. Don't go to your unbelieving counselor. Don't go to your non-Christian friends and colleagues to ask them for advice. They'll give you the wrong advice. Psalm 1 says, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. You've got the word of God, you've got the body of Christ, you've got the Holy Spirit as your counselor, you've got the gift of prayer. We've got gifts in the church where some people have that gift of wisdom. You've got everything you need in the Bible. Why go to unbelievers for counsel? Come to God and come to His word. Second name is Mighty God. A Jehovah's Witness right across, he doesn't live across the street, but they were out outside one day across the street, and I went across, and the Jehovah's Witness, I pointed into Isaiah 9, verse 6. I said, the child is born, the son is given, and his name is Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. That says Jesus is God. He said, Jesus is a God, that's what they believe, small g. He's a God, and he's the Mighty God, but he's not the Almighty God. In Hebrew, that is El Gibor. So he's El Gibor, but he's not El Shaddai. El Shaddai is Almighty God. So he's El Gibor. Well, that is wrong. That is wrong to use that argument. Why? Because in the next chapter, Isaiah 10 verse 21, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Same word, El Gibor. (laughs) And then in Deuteronomy, same thing. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17, it speaks of the Lord God, and it calls him El Gibor. Nehemiah 9 verse 32, the same, and maybe one verse I must read. Jeremiah 32, verse 18, we read, You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to the children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. El Gibor. That's Jesus. (laughs) He is the mighty God. He is the almighty God. He is the Lord. And because he's the almighty God and the mighty God... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. There's nothing he cannot do. Everything the Father does, Jesus does also. John 5 verse 19. Jesus is the creator of all things. John 1 verse 3. Jesus will raise the dead one day. John 5, 28 and 29. Jesus has authority over his own life. He said, I lay my life down and I take it up again. And then Jesus saves people from every tribe, language, people and nation. So don't tell me he's just mighty but he's not almighty. No, He is mighty and almighty. Third name, Eternal Father, chapter 9, verse 6, Everlasting Father. Now, there's a false teaching called modalism, and there are still people who believe this. Modalism says that Jesus is the Father. They they also call themselves the Jesus-only churches. Jesus is the Father, and Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not true. When Jesus was baptized, the Spirit came upon him and the Father said, This is my beloved Son. And John MacArthur said about that verse if modalism is true. Well, he's changing hats really fast. <laughs> no, we believe in one God, but He exists as three persons or in three persons. So baptize them, baptizing them, Matthew 28, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say into the names. Or it doesn't say in the name of the Father, the name of the Son. No, one name, three persons. And we find the same, in, that's repeated many times in Scripture, this teaching. So, why does He call Jesus everlasting Father? Because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Father is in me, I am in the Father. And then another reason why Jesus is called the everlasting Father, just like a father produces children... So Jesus produced his people. So Jesus is the creator of his people. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. The life is in Christ. He is the giver of life and spiritual life also. And then finally, in verse 6, Prince of Peace. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the bringer of peace. What were the very first words of Jesus after the resurrection to the disciples in the upper room when they were locked behind doors? Shalom, peace. What did he mean? He didn't just say, hi, calm down. No, peace there means there's now really peace between God and man. Colossians 1 verse 20. There is peace through the blood of his cross. He's brought the war to an end. Do you have that Peace. Do you have peace with God? I'm not saying, do you have a feeling of peace? I'm saying, do you have peace with God through Jesus? If you're busy with sin, and again, living in sin, then you don't have peace with God. Even though you have a mushy feeling inside, and you feel happy, you don't have peace with God. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The false prophets will tell you, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You don't have peace. There is only peace if you repent of your sin, you turn to the Son of God, and you trust in the Son of God, because He Himself is the Prince of Peace. And that peace grows in the next verse. Of the increase of His government and of peace. As more and more people are saved, as the kingdom of Jesus spreads across the earth, Sua sua di En meer en meer mense het vrede met God. En meer en meer brei die vrede van God uit. Vrede wat hy gebring het vir sondags. En dat kingdom, die koninkrijk hou aangroe en het hou aan uitbrei, totdat daar vrede oor die ganse aarde is. Want hy sê daar, of the increase of his government. Increase betekent het vermeerder. Die vermeerdering van sy koninkrijk en van vrede sal daar geen einde wees Dit hoe net aan en aan en aan. En dit lees jy bijvoorbeeld in Jesaja hoofstuk 11 vers 9. Daar sal geen dood en geen verwoesting wees in my heilige berg nie, sê die heren, want die aarde sal vol wees van die kennis van die heren, soos wat die waters die seebodem oordek. Of Daniel 2, die klip wat neer die kat een standbeeld gebrek, die klip groei en groei en groei en groei, totdat het een berg word wat die hele aarde vol. Of Mattheüs 13, die koninkryk van die hemel is soos een mosterd saaikie. is klein, hy is baie klein, begin klein, maar hy groei en groei en groei tot die grootste plant in die, uh, tuin, in die, plant, plant in die tuin word. <laughs> ok, tot die grootste plant in die tuin word. En so groei die koninkryk van die Heere. En dan word hy ook genoem Messias, dat is nog een naam, daar wanneer het sê, on the throne of David. Nou, So on the throne of David, that means jesus is the messiah he's the king from the line of david's messiah means the anointed one so he's the anointed one from the lineage and the tribe of david and that's fulfilled luke chapter 1 verse 32 says that so the kingdom of jesus does not begin when jesus returns i know we might disagree on this and i'm not going to tell you we must die on the seal and fight till we die fight to the death but the kingdom of Jesus does not start when Jesus comes the second time. The kingdom of Christ started when Jesus came the first time and then ascended into heaven, the Yemufar. And we know this from a number of passages. For instance, in verse 5 we saw the, son is born, or the child is born, the son is given and so on. I'm thinking of passages like Daniel 7. And many people take Daniel 7 and says it refers to the second coming. It doesn't. Because it says he came up with a cloud to the ancient of days. Not came down with a cloud to earth. That's talking of his ascension. Say Yemufar. And he received the kingdom. To say it's his. He even said that before he left. He told the disciples all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go now make disciples of all the nations. I'm their king. Tell them to bow the knee before me. Your God reigns. And if they don't bow, they be crushed. And if they do bow, they be forgiven and accepted. More verses. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the first coming. That's the ascension. This the Matthew 2, when Jesus lies as a baby or as a child in a house and the wise men come. And they worship him. They even ask, where is he who is born king of the Jews? His kingdom starts when Jesus preached. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He cast out demons and said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus said, do not say here or there or there. There's the kingdom. No, the kingdom of God is among you, meaning I am your king. Acts chapter 2, He ascends into heaven and He sits at the right hand of His Father. He sits as King. Ephesians 1 verse 20 to 22, same thing. He is above every rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named already, not yet to come only. Already He sits as King. And that kingdom, verse Seven, that increase of His kingdom, of His government, it will continue until every enemy is under the feet of Jesus Christ. And every nation bows the knee to Him and worships Him. And that in the future, you will see that happen. You will see the nations come and worship before Jesus Christ. Uh, Psalm 86 Verse 9. All the nations you have made will come and bow before you. Psalm 72. The kingdom of Jesus will stretch from shore to shore, from the river to the ends of the earth. Ask of me, I will give nations as your inheritance. Psalm 2, verse 8. And this one I must read. Psalm 102. And my awesome rock now up. is Psalm 102. Verse 21 and 22, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together and kingdoms will gather to worship the Lord. Those kingdoms will come and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Obadiah, Obadiah, verse 21, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In Zechariah 9, verse 10, 14 verse nine, you can look it up. Now let, let me just say this. It's.. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, now some are going to disagree and say, no. When Jesus comes, the kingdom starts, and then Jesus will conquer his enemies." No, no. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 24 says, "Jesus will reign at his father's right hand until every enemy is put under his feet. Jesus is at his father's right hand now. Jesus will reign in heaven until every enemy is put under his feet. Then he will come again. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. The last enemy. Not defeats death by raising the dead and then he has to defeat more enemies. He sits at his father's right hand until every enemy is under his feet. Then he comes again. And the final enemy to be defeated will be death. So what is your and what is your and my purpose what is your and my responsibility our responsibility is to pray for the coming of this kingdom jesus told us to do this let your kingdom come we should pray that and we should preach for that we should preach the message of the kingdom and listen we cannot do this alone some people look at my view called post-millennialism and they say oh the difference between armals and premills on the one side and postmills on the other side armals and believe that Jesus is going to bring in the kingdom. Postmates believe the church is going to do it. No. We believe Jesus is going to do it, and He's going to do it by the power of His Spirit, where He rules in heaven. And He will do this through the church, through the preaching of the gospel, and through prayer. And so this may word, look at you. to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. So let us plead, people. Let us plead for a revival. Let us plead with God for the saving of the lost. And let us not do what I did yesterday when I neglected to share the gospel with people. But let us go and share the gospel with the lost. And you listen to all of this and we keep on doing this. We keep on doing this until the end of verse 7 happens. He will establish his kingdom, uphold it, justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Until Jesus returns from heaven and he takes up his eternal kingdom. And he rules and reigns forever and ever in righteousness. So you listen to this. And it seems that this is impossible. This can't happen. All these things you said. And it looks, just look at COVID. Look at what's going on in the world. I think Jesus is on the losing side. Oh, this is not going to happen. How do we know it's going to happen? Just go back to the end of verse 7 again. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Don't think because it's impossible for us, it's impossible with God. God can do it in a flash. And he says that in Isaiah 66 verse 8. Can a nation be born in one day? You, You better believe it's going to happen. And when it comes, it's going to happen quickly, says Isaiah 60, verse 22. Okay, so can I close with this? Can I close with this by saying, what you believe about the end times, it doesn't affect your salvation. You're not less saved because you're a post, a primal, or a omel. Let's see if it's going to a sin It doesn't affect your salvation, but it does affect your praying, and it does affect your evangelism, your preaching and it does affect your hope. Do you believe that the communists or Islam or the Illuminati are going to take over the world? Or do you believe that the Son of God has already defeated Satan by his death on the cross, he defeated the enemy, he stripped him and he will continue defeating his enemies and plate every enemy under his feet. Do you believe? That God brings the councils and the plans of the nations to nothing. And God will, will continue His own purposes and plans and bring it to fulfillment. Do you believe that the heart of every man is in the heart of God? That He can turn it wherever He wills, as Proverbs 21 verse 1 says. Well, if you believe that then, I think you should agree with this paragraph. If the whole massive system of communism, communism could collapse like a house of cards... In two years, between 1989 and 1991, when the Soviet Union, the old, Ru- old name for Russia, when the Soviet Union in itself it imploded, if you could see that happen, what can God do next? In the 21st century, the solid block of Islam from Morocco in the west to the Indonesia in the east, that seems impossible to collapse. Yet so too did once the communist empire. And while China remains at least nominally communist, the church there is thriving. Do you believe in the power of God to completely destroy his enemies and confound their purposes? Biblically, there's no reason why the frontiers of Islam should not be pushed back. Not by armies, as in the past, but by the power of God's word and his message of salvation. End quote. And if you doubt this, Then I remind you of Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus Christ will rule at his Father's right hand until every enemy is put under his feet. And may that happen quickly. Amen. Our Father, we pray that this would come quickly indeed. Lord, above all, we long for your second coming. We long for the coming of the Son of God on the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man shining with brilliance and brightness shining the King of kings and Lord of glory, that you would return and crush all your enemies, O God, and that many of your enemies in the years remaining before your coming, many of them would be brought to bow the knee before you willingly and to confess you as Lord of all. Help us as a church. And I ask forgiveness for my own sin, Lord, and also for us as a church where we have not been as zealous and passionate in evangelism as in days past, ignite in our hearts again a passion for the glory of Christ among the peoples, that we will share the good news of salvation and see many come to the knowledge of the Lord. And may it spread across all the earth as the waters cover the sea. Amen.